Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. Thank you for joining us for tonight's program. Firstly, what I'm about to say is not just for women. I hope it transforms women. I hope that we see young girls hear what has to be said about these four particular women who are featured in the Bible and go, wow. In modern Western society, we value the contribution of women. Sadly, that hasn't always been the case through history or across cultures. So upon what is our current esteem and regard for women founded? Tonight, Dr. Corbett begins a four-part series looking at the most inspirational women of the Bible. And as we'll discover, it was actually Jesus who laid the foundation for how women should be regarded. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for a look at the first of four women. Tonight, Hannah, when desperate, looked drunk. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us and I, I particularly pray that what we share now would bring healing, it would bring strength, it would cause dim view of life and you and others to become clear and beautiful and bright. And Father, I pray that as your word is preached, you would strengthen and bring healing to each person here in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the most inspirational women of the Bible. For the most of the plane trip that I was away, I was, I was actually reading a book. So I wasn't, normally I, I watch movies because I'm a cheapskate and I don't pay to go to the movies, I just watch it on planes. And this time I didn't, except for the last leg, which is the shortest leg, which is from Melbourne to Launceston. And, and you get what they advertise as a 45 minute flight, which takes about an hour and five. And uh, that's because you sit on the tarmac and wait for whatever. And so you get to watch about half of a, a movie. And I watched, I started to watch, I haven't, I'm looking forward to seeing the end of it actually. It, it hasn't come to the cinemas and I never even heard of it. And before, I better tell you the title and I better explain to you the title in case you think something about me that you shouldn't think and I don't want you to think because the name of the movie is called It's About Sex and it, before you think, oh yes, <laughs> it's actually sex in the sense of gender and it's the story of Ruth Bader uh, Grisberg, or Grisberg, Grinsberg, Grinsberg, who went on to become a Chief Justice of the United States. She went to Harvard Law School in the 1950s and she was one of only six women in the entire program of law. When she graduated, she graduated top of her class. She went on to Columbia and graduated top of the law class there as well. And you would think with such credentials, she would get snapped up by a law firm. They moved to New York because her husband also graduated as a Harvard lawyer and he got a job straight away. She was knocked back by 12 law firms and the general response, this is in the late 1950s, the general response was, why on earth would we want to hire a woman? And she found this incredible pushback for no other reason than for her sex, her gender. And so in the half of the movie that I got to see, she raised a number of points of law in the American legal system that openly and blatantly discriminated against being a woman. So if you were born a woman, you had less rights than being a man. It's, it's so unbelievable for us with our 
21st century ears, our approach to women, people of colour, to think that this even happened in the Western world, but it did. And as I said, she went on to become, I think, a Chief Justice of the United States. I'll I'll, I'll let you know when I see the end of the movie, because it's based on a true story. And even in the church, there's been some misunderstanding about the place and role of women. In fact, I've had, in, in my tw- coming up to my, in September will be 24 years here pastoring this church. And over that time, I think I've had two or three, two that I know of, uh, possibly a third person, see that we use women to sometimes preach, sometimes share communion, sometimes do things publicly. And that has, for some reason, offended the sensitivities of some people who've been taught that that is not biblical and that's not authorised by scripture and they've left our church. Now you might think three over 24 years, that's not bad Um, but it's still, I find it upsetting that people think that. So I just want to tell you what we're going to do this morning. I've picked four women that I find and I hope you do too to be particularly inspirational. The first one is Hannah and I've subtitled this when desperate looks drunk. And if you know the story of Hannah, you'll see why I've called it that. But before I do that, I need just to clear this foundation so that we don't go to three people who have now left the church because of what I'm about to say. So I need to kind of put this foundation down. Firstly, what I'm about to say is not just for women. I hope it transforms women. I hope that we see young girls hear what has to be said about these four particular women who are featured in the Bible and go, wow, God could use me. I could be someone that changes the course of history. Not just is a part of it, but is the cause of it. That's what I hope. I hope that young women get a backbone in this church. I hope young men do as well. I mean, you've heard me say that, that I I think young men need a backbone. But I think young women need a backbone. So... As I'm reading, I've nearly finished Jordan Peterson's book and he talks about so many women who are victims in one way or another because they are naive about what it means to be a woman. So I hope through this series that we can go some way to dealing perhaps, perhaps with some of the naivety that comes with being a woman and how that unfortunately has made some women vulnerable. So let me say a couple of things. Firstly, Genesis 1.27 this is foundational to, the, to all of scripture, but it's important to see this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Uh, I'm not going to rush over this. Just going to stop here for a moment and point out what I hope you all see in this verse. Who is created in the image of God? Male and female, men and women, male and female. By the way, there was no third option. Now, I'm not trying to be silly or funny here. I'm saying that when there is presented a third option, I think as the UN are now, I've lost count, I think it's 57 different genders now. But when you get to anything beyond two, you get brokenness. And it's not condemnation, it's not unloving, it's not, and I hope, I, I hope the Rugby Union Council of Australia don't ban me from my potential, f- f- anyway. Um, it, <laughs> but that's the first thing to see. 
It goes on in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, which chapter 2 is not a different creation account. It's the same creation account, but from a different perspective. It's from the perspective of being someone who's just outside of Eden. And there's a patch of ground that's got nothing in it yet. No animals are walking there, no plants are planted there. They're in existence, but not in that bit. And God takes Adam out of the dust outside of Eden, but this is... And now we have the account of what happened in Genesis 1 where God creates Adam, places him in a garden that he's now assembling. And Adam very soon realises this is no fun being on your own. And it still isn't, male or female. And so we have this account that when God took something out of Adam and it's... (laughs) represented in what we might call at least symbolically it's called a rib which is close to Adam's heart right so he then has that part of him which represented the full image of God taken out of him and invested in the woman and it says in this verse then the man said as God brought Eve this is the very first wedding And the elements of a wedding, by the way, are exhibited in chapter 2. A man standing before God, the father of the bride, bringing the woman to the man so that he can protect her and she can be a life source. And the same principles of a wedding still apply. And what happens there is an exchange of covenant. And covenant apparently some people get really freaked out by this word covenant but in a marriage sense it means this an agreement that's not meant to be broken now I need to put an asterisk on that because I know that there are people here who've gone through the pain of divorce and I'm sure if we had and I've said this to you before I'm sure if we had every person in, in our church who's been through divorce and say was that fun they'll say absolutely not you regret that is there pain associated with that yes I wish it hadn't gone that way but it has and there's more I could say about that but I thank God for the grace of God amen so a covenant not meant to be broken so these elements are evident in in this relationship and it wasn't one where the man was over the woman the man was given responsibility to protect and he was given things like physical strength that she wasn't given and she was given life sourceness that he wasn't given so we have this thing that's really apparently really really difficult for people to get their head around and it goes like this just because things are different doesn't mean they can't be equal got it so equality doesn't mean sameness you know when a young child comes into the lounge room while you're watching sorry doing something important um football whatever and just says to you while you're busy engaged in what you're doing says dad is a cup of sugar equal to a cup of flour and every dad's going to say yes (laughs) just to highlight that difference and sameness or equality and sameness don't count then this is last bone of my bones flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man so woman mother of all living life source she could do something unique that Adam couldn't do because she was taken out of man so that's the covenant that's why marriage is a covenant an exchange of vows I just want you to see from the foundation there's equality then I want you to see this because 
there's, a, I think, a confusion over what it means that God has called the man to be the head of the house. Because it sounds like um, whatever I say goes. And every man who's ever tried that um, reminds me of, uh, of the guy who was at a conference. And we've just come back from a conference. And he was talking with one of the guys in the foyer who was from New South Wales. And we, we saw people from New South Wales. In fact, nearly every state of Australia conference we're at and the, this guy was talking with the guy he said I said how are you going so oh, had a bit of trouble with my wife lately I said oh really yeah yeah but I said listen lovey I'm not very happy kitchen's not tidy wasn't anything in the fridge and if I don't see a change over the next few days look out the guy said what happened well over the next few days the uh, fridge was full and the kitchen was tidy and there was a guy from Queensland he was there going Oh, wow, I had a bit of trouble with my wife too. And I said, sweetie, 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 if, if I don't see you vacuum the carpet in the lounge room, if I don't see some food in the pantry, and if I don't see the, the front lawn mowed, if I don't see it, look, there'll be, tr- there'll be trouble. And the two guys go, well, what happened? I said, well, day one went by, nothing. Day two went by, nothing. Day three, sure enough, she mowed the lawn, she vacuumed the house and she tied and fixed up the pantry. It was all good. I saw it, it all happened. Then there's this guy from Tasmania. And he said, yeah, well, I've been having trouble with my wife too. And they said, well, well what would you do? I said, I said, dear, if I don't see the house vacuumed, the kitchen tidy and meal on the table at dinner time, if I don't see that within three days, look out. And they said, well, what happened? Day one, didn't see anything. Day two, didn't see anything. Day three, I could see a little bit out the left eye. (laughs) That brings me to Genesis 21. (laughs) And you might, that's a great segue, isn't it? It's a great segue. Because here we have that God says to Abraham, who's pretty ticked with Sarah at this point, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. And notice what God says. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But do you notice Abraham was ticked with his wife. And God says, you're wrong. Listen to what your wife is saying because she's right. How many times have... Women heard a man say, I was wrong, you were right. Is there any woman here who's ever heard that? One, two, two, three, three, four, four, five, five. Oh, did you just say it, did you, Ronnie? <laughs> now, the fact there's only five is very telling, isn't it? <laughs> well, I just want you to see, this is God. Saying to Abraham, you were wrong. She was right. Genesis 24 verse 8, we have this amazing scene where Abraham, and one of the things I got to speak at the, uh, the A2A conference, and I was talking about the book of Proverbs and how really the backdrop to that is a father talking to his son about going out and finding a wife, but there's a particular wife that the father wants for his son and she's called Lady Wisdom and so Proverbs unpacks this duel between two women to get the affection of this young man whom Proverbs is written to 
And it sounds like an arranged marriage, and I'm actually thinking with so many people, you know, I just think bring back arranged marriage. Anyway, so here's an arranged marriage that Abraham wants to orchestrate for his son. But I want you to see there's something really interesting about this because the servant of Abraham says, what if I, what if I go to this particular woman where you're telling me to find a wife for Isaac? And she says, no. Well, but if the woman, here it is, verse 8, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. What? So we have the background here in Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, which is a way of making a promise, and that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, here's the first reference, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there, for the Lord, the God of heaven, took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, I will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So this is pretty radical stuff. I hope you can see this is, if, if a woman exercises her opinion, it's validated. Now here's the other thing that's really, really breathtaking, really, because in the ancient culture, the surrounding neighbours of Israel essentially assigned no legal rights to women. In fact, when after the exile and the Pharisees and all the rest of it, they kind of imbibed some of that Babylonian stuff and brought it back to Israel. And, and a woman's testimony in a court of law was not permitted for no other reason than the fact she was a woman. And so we find this amazing statement, and it's one of those things, it's easy to read Exodus and go, oh, law, animal sacrifices, blah, 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 and miss some of these things. Notice this, when an ox scores a man or a woman to death, and again, we read this with our 21st century eyes and go, yeah, of course, sure, but this is not written to 21st century people. This is written to a people where if a woman died, so what? And again, that might sound offensive and hard to grasp with our ears, and I hope it does. But notice what God's word said thousands of years ago. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eating, eaten. The owner of the ox shall not be liable. And there's an equality before the law. But here, when we look at scripture, there is this outstanding shift from what happened with the thinking. As I mentioned to you, when Israel was taken, as we've seen through Jeremiah, taken into captivity in Babylon, and then that was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, then, then the Persian Empire, and they came back to their land because Cyrus permitted them to, they imbibed a whole lot of stuff that was pretty negative toward women. So along comes Jesus. And he is by far the single greatest point in history where the cause of women was advanced. No doubt about it. 
And that's not just my opinion, as I'll show you in a moment. It says, for example, this, Matthew 27, verse 55, there are also many women there looking on from a distance. And here's the important point. Who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Get this. There's 12 disciples, right? There's 12 disciples who've been following him for the best part of three and a half years. There's also this group of 70 people who were kind of periphery. They were there. But then there's this band of about five women that were there for the whole nine yards. And you think, wow. And the point is, at the cross of the 12 disciples that followed him for three and a half years, one committed suicide, Judas, and 10 out of the surviving 11 fled in fear. And before the cross, there was one, that was John, and these five women. Now tell me, who's displaying courage here? So this is, this is amazing that women were drawn to Jesus. They felt safe with Jesus. There was no comments made to treat a woman like a piece of meat or an object. Jesus spoke to women as if they were people. It is well. Because when we were on, if you've ever been to Surface Paradise, it is, and I've said it to the people who live there, I said, this is a kooky place. This is really, really weird. And we have family that live there, and so we've, we've been there more often than we would have preferred. It is a nutsy place. It's nutsy, N-U-T-S-E-Y. It's, a, it's, it's just odd, and you see people wearing clothes that they would never wear in downtown Launceston. <laughs> and we saw people who had tattoos. Well, I, for the life of me, I didn't even know you could get a fit a tattoo, tattoo in there. There were body piercings where I'm thinking, if you didn't have chafing before, you'd have it now. It's like, and I was really pleased at one point, pleased in one sense, please hear my heart. We saw someone go by, and, and please, it's not, please, you can have tattoos. I couldn't give a rip if you've got tattoos. You can have piercings, I don't care. But sometimes people have it, and they're, saying, they're actually telling you something that's, that's happened on the inside. And we saw someone, and, and Kim saw someone, and, and, and the latest thing now is to get your, get your eyeballs tattooed. If, if you're a young person and you've seen people who've got, like they inject into the eye <coughs> and we're seeing some of this with weird colored eyes and these are the girls and we saw someone go and wearing clothes that was like there's nothing much left for the imagination here and Kim at one point said she must be really really hurting something must have happened and she must be in a great deal of pain to want to look like that and I hope that we have compassion not condemnation for people like that among whom were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee and obviously Mary the mother of Jesus it says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 and this speaks of equality between men and women before God this is why we would say you don't need a priest to intercede for you. Wives don't need their husband to pray on their behalf and so on. It's, it's pretty clear, I think, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Just to point out, this doesn't mean gender doesn't count. It doesn't mean that gender doesn't matter. This is talking about access to God and the salvation that he offers. So it's not saying there's no such thing as a difference between Jew or Greek. There's no such thing. It's not saying there's no such thing between whether you're free or a slave or whether you're male or female. Those differences are there, but you have equal access to God. You have equal access to salvation. This is good news. This is the essence of Christianity. And so Professor Rodney Stark, who is one of the world's leading sociologists, he's the Distinguished Professor of Social Sciences at Baylor University in the United States. He states this, that it was Christianity which transformed the way women were regarded by the world. Christianity was the single greatest force for good for women, says Professor Rodney Stark, who's written mammoth books on this, just on this topic. He says, The growth of Christianity was largely due to the conversion of women because women were deeply attracted to the Jesus of Christianity for no other reason than the fact here's a man who offers salvation for women and who treats women as equal to men the radical concept radical so that's the foundation that I wanted to to give I could also share other things like Romans chapter 16 Paul is greeting pastors he's greeting ministers of the church half of them have female names in fact one of them is called Junius and Paul says of her of all the apostles she is an exceptional one an exceptional apostle? Wow. So that's one part of the foundation. The next part of the foundation is that we're all going to be looking at the Old Testament in a moment. And I need to say something about how we read the Bible and how we understand it. That's what hermeneutics is. How we read it and how we understand it. So firstly, it's an abuse to claim that the, the Bible, Scripture, Scripture which means sacred text, that the Scriptures oppress women it's just wrong to teach that it's wrong to say that it's wrong to make that claim now I know how people do it for example in Ephesians 5 22 it says this wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord it sounds like you can't do anything unless your husband gives permission and that's the way many husbands have presented it to women but the verse before that says submit one to another and this is the danger of reading a verse in isolation Secondly, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Again, there's a context there. The next verse goes on and says, For I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And we see that, again, there's a context that, that is addressing an issue in the Ephesian church that Paul is writing to Timothy about where there were certain women who were disrupting the church service. Paul says, for these women, they are to keep quiet. Not universally women are to be silent. And the reason we know that is because Scripture actually teaches variously that God gives gifts to women. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, the day of Pentecost. This is Peter saying, and he's referring to the prophecies of Joel being fulfilled. And it says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out 
my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall profit. Your sons and your what? Now, didn't it just say that women should keep silent in church? What are these girls to prophesy with mime? (laughs) Ridiculous. So, uh, shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, your old men shall dream dreams. And we could see that, you know, I said to you before that, that a woman's testimony was not permitted in a court of law. And, you know, the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. Radical stuff. We read it today and go, yeah. But no, it was radical. How we read, now we're about to read the Old Testament narrative of, of, about Hannah. And, and I want us to be very, very careful as we do this. Because sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm claiming the promises. When in fact, uh, what God promised Hannah, in fact, we're actually going to see God didn't promise Hannah anything, which is all the more remarkable, is that you, you, can't, you cannot draw principles for your own life from the experiences narrated about others. It, it's one of those comments that, that I hear at conferences, and we didn't quite hear it, but we nearly heard it at the conference that myself, Donna, Kim, and uh, Tony went to. And it's this, if, if I can do it, you can do it too. You know what? Most of the time, that's a load of rubbish. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, please go to our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select The Most Inspirational Women of the Bible, Part 1, Hannah, from our online store. As we've heard tonight, we need to be careful how we interpret Scripture and what message we take from it for our own lives. But one thing is clear. Jesus recognised and valued women in his time of ministry. Lessons from Hannah. More from Dr Corbett next week as he introduces Ruth. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.